HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Bruce's Chocolate Cake, Willy Wonka's, Willy Wonka's Wallpaper, Winnie the Pooh's Honey, these all have tempted our imaginations and appetites, but author and blogger behind Baking Fiction in the Little Library Cafe, Kate Young, brings them to life. Her first book came out last year, and she has another coming out this fall. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much. So I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but what is your Desert Island book and then by proxy your Desert Island food? Uh, I think it would be I Capture the Castle. I change it occasionally, but I keep coming back to that one. And um, I, I think I first read it when I was about 12. It's a book by Dodie Smith, who's probably more famous for writing The Hundred Mund Dalmatians. Um, but I think I Capture the Castle is an even better book. Uh, and in it, the central character, Cassandra, talks about um, how much she loves bread and butter and honey. Mm-hmm. And that is what I would always want on a desert island. That's a good uh, cheat answer because you get three foods in one. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> Definitely a cheat, but I like it. Yeah, so in the intro to your uh, your first cookbook, you talk about how familiar books and foods provided comfort to you during formative parts of your life. Um, something I'm sure everyone can relate to. And so can you talk a bit about your various transitions and which books you turn to most during these times? Absolutely. I grew up in Australia. I was actually born in England, but um, I have no memory of being a child in England. I moved to Australia when I was less than two years old. Um, but I grew up with parents who'd spent their 20s in England and so were quite formed by that experience. So although I grew up in Australia, I grew up with a lot of English English literature and a lot of conversations about England um, and a lot of English food and then always grew up certain that I would at some point move back here and I graduated university at 21 and did so and uh, and once I was here all of these books from my childhood so The Secret Garden and The Railway Children and Solos and Amazons and all of that sort of magical outdoorsy English childhood 
sort of wonder and joy um, was was the place that I was now living. And obviously, I moved here in 2009, so it was a very different world to the world of Swallows and Amazons and the Famous Five and Harry Potter and all of those books. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was some comfort in my sort of these books that I read as a child and the familiarity I had with the country that I moved to. Um, and so I sort of ended up returning to them quite a lot and eventually started cooking from them. And that was where the blog was born. Mm-hmm. You actually write in the book, which I've been meaning to ask, um, that you thought you were Italian uh, when you were growing up. So can you explain how you came yeah. to that conclusion? <laughs> My mom just never corrected me. I made an assumption at some point when I was quite tiny that that's what we were. Um, and that's a lot of the food we cooked was Italian food um, a lot of our sort of family friends are Italian um, and and I just assumed that we were as well and instead of correcting me I didn't really know for sure until I did a family tree and went oh no we're definitely not Italian <laughs> none of these names sound even remotely Italian so what was your first childhood memory of reading and eating versus reading or eating via reading um, I remember I remember listening to Winnie the Pooh when I was little. My mum had it uh, on audiobook. There's a beautiful recording of it that's Alan Bennett reading it. Um, and I remember very specifically listening to that as I was going to sleep and waking up thinking of honey um, <laughs> and and wanting honey and bread and, and butter. And there's that wonderful bit in Winnie the Pooh where, where Winnie the Pooh says, I, I, I would quite like some honey I think it's and some some cream or some bread, and he said, but don't worry too much about the bread, the honey. Just make <laughs> sure there's honey. And I remember that really distinctly. And Australian honey is so lovely and so rich and diverse in terms of what you have access to, because there's so many different plants and so many different flowers. That I grew up really loving honey and mm-hmm. loving that it was Winnie the Pooh's thing as well. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got into this a bit, but um, if you could expand a bit more how and why do you think books are so linked to food and to memory I think that there's we're really our emotions are really rooted in in memories from childhood I think that there's a lot of a lot of emotion held in those early memories that we all have and I think that there's something particularly tangible about memories of food, even if it's not meals you actually ate, but meals you read about. In really mystical worlds that you can't imagine being, you can still kind of imagine the food and imagine what it must be like to sit down with those characters around that table. And so I found, and, and I have found talking to people about it since, that people really do have a, a a strong memory of the food in the books they read, particularly as children, but also in in books we read as adults as well. Mm-hmm. People come to me with ideas all the time for the blog or for the book or whatever it is, so books they think I should read or ones they think I should do that I haven't done yet. And it's it's such a wonderful thing to just talk to people over and over about, oh yes, that wonderful scene in Redwall or that amazing thing that they eat in the bell jar that makes them all sick or you know all of these things that people come and go oh you must have done this one because surely if this is what you do you've done it and it is lovely that we've all got this sort of shared recollection Um, and I think it is because they they feel so tangible even fictional meals. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right that even or when you moved away and you're feeling homesick that you cooked foods from books from your childhood. And so um, how do you use food to return to these memories? And are they ever as satisfying as they were upon reading them? That's how the blog originally started. So I started it, um, gosh, five years ago now, 2014. And, um, and it, it started because I was feeling homesick. And I thought that what sounded good and what sounded like it would be grounding um, would be to bake a treacle tart, which I'd never eaten. I thought it had treacle in it. It doesn't. It has golden syrup. Um, and I made one because it's Harry Potter's favorite dessert. And when he gets to Hogwarts on the first night, that's what he picks out of all the desserts on the table in the Great Hall. And it was this quite extraordinary moment of going, I want to eat this thing because I have a distinct memory of it, despite the fact that I've never tried a slice of it. I have no idea how to make it. And so I figured it out and and made it, and that was how it all started. Mm -hmm. But how do you know if you've nailed the tart, or how do you know if um, a recipe is to your liking because you you kind of have nothing to compare it against, right? No, it's an interesting thing, and I think that it's only ever going to be as well my interpretation of what that dish is feels like and tastes like and because there's such shared memories and there's such richness of of detail in books but also I'm, I often make things where there's not richness of detail and where it's a passing mention of a cake or a pie or a whatever it is um it, it is a bit of creative license and a bit of like well how do I imagine these characters ate it and how does it what does it seem that they would eat in my head and in my version of that story? And like all books, I think it's uh, I think it's very much that everyone's going to have their own perception of what those characters look like, what that table looks like, what the food looks and tastes like. So I know that it's only ever going to be my interpretation of it. Um, but I try and read historic cookbooks and look at where those recipes might have come from or why that mention of that particular food fits in that particular scene and have a real think about what that means in that scene and where it might have come from. Mm-hmm. Have you had a friend try um, one of your tarts or another food and th- say, like, this is completely unlike the food that I had imagined and then have you had to go and edit it? It's interesting. Um, I've had people go, oh my gosh, this is not at all what I imagined, <laughs> but it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the pot cakes from the Magic Faraway Tree were a really hard thing to get right because they're essentially a magical kind of cake. And when you bite into them, they burst open and there's honey inside. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of already done a honey cake from Winnie the Pooh and it didn't have honey in the middle anyway. And I didn't want to be injecting it into things. Um, and I sort of did it in biscuits and did it in cakes and it, it never I never quite made it work and then I filled donuts with honeycomb and fried donuts and had these these donut cakes that you bite into and uh, and there's honeycomb inside and I know that's not technically right but that felt right mm-hmm. in terms of the story and it was I, I gave it to a friend who'd specifically requested it, who enjoyed it very much um, and said, this is totally different to what I would have done, but this is great. Hmm. And so I feel like, um, I don't know about you, but I'm also very entranced and fascinated by food in TV or on movie sets. But I feel like that uh, tantalizes my appetite or my uh, my hunger in a very different way than books. So how do how does reading about food kind of give you a little more um, creative license there? 
Yeah, I, I think I, I'm totally with you. I also love, and particularly having spent the past five years doing this now, I kind of can't avoid watching things with that lens, mm -hmm. with that sort of, you know, even if it's a film and I'm never going to do a film in the book or anything like that because that's not what I do. It is, has always been a fascinating thing to go, ooh, that's a really interesting choice or why that dish or why that presentation of it. But um, in a book, I think there's so, and this is, you know, why I love TV and I love films and all of that, but I have special affection for the fact that books allow you to be, they give you your own creative license and they allow you to be in charge of the sort of the imagining of what something might look like because unless you're talking about picture books they mostly don't come with pictures and so you get to imagine what that dish looks like and tastes like and and that is a, a sort of a really special thing to be able to recreate because then you can entirely rely on your own imagination. Mm -hmm. And so with the added layer of having a very picture-heavy Instagram and blog, how has that kind of complicated <laughs> <laughs> everything for you? Um, it's been it's been interesting. I uh, the, the blog and the, the Instagram and everything else sort of came out of wanting to share it. And I think that there's a lot of... that visually, in a cookbook, I often want pictures. It is an interesting thing with it. I, I love this, you know lyrical description of food but I also love a cookbook that's full of beautiful sumptuous pictures that make me want to remake that food in that image um, and I think that it's been a really interesting thing to be able to go what what do I want to show in that picture what story do I want that picture to tell and I think we made quite active choices in the book for it not to be too heavily themed I think that there there might have been potential to go down a route that was much more um, sort of that you'd have props or you'd have something that would make it look like much more that that, that book is, is where that food is. But I wanted it to function first and foremost as a cookbook rather than as sort of a, a themed book that you might only get out if you were hosting a Harry Potter party or a Winnie the Pooh party or whatever it would be. So I wanted it to, to clearly show you what that food is so that you can either follow the instructions and know what you're aiming for, or there's a couple of sort of photos in the book that show you step-by-step step how to get somewhere, and that they came very much out of wanting to communicate to somebody wanting to cook that food just how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it um, makes sense that you say that they're purely functional, because um, if I were you or I was thinking that having to create an image of this food that I've read about would feel somewhat limiting. Um, I feel like it would be really confining in. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you yeah, work with, with your you. photographer in, uh, I guess, making sure that your vision's there, but it's also that a useful, it's a still useful photograph. Mm, the photographer that I work with um, has, has sort of been the same since the beginning. I, I do my own Instagram and, and own shots on the blog, but for the books, we obviously wanted somebody who actually knew what they were doing rather than just sort of <laughs> pretend along. Um, and she's somebody I went to university with. Her name's Lane Timms, and she's extraordinary. Her, her photography's beautiful. She does um, lifestyle and travel photography mostly, um, but has done a couple of uh, other types of books, including my cookbooks. And 
the way that we do it is we do, because she lives in Australia and I live in England, we do everything in a really short space of time. So we only really have a week or just over a week to get everything done. Um, and it means that we just cook all day and she photographs everything that gets cooked. And then I have friends who come around and eat all that food. <laughs> and so in a purely practical sense, the way that we do it is that we want it to look like the dish that would come out of the kitchen that comes from those instructions being followed. So we want it to look accessible. We want it to look like it actually looks. So there's no sort of tricks or or interesting bits of photography that make it um, look magical or look like it doesn't exist on a real plate in a real kitchen. Um, and so we, we sort of just want to make sure that it's framed as, as clearly as possible to demonstrate to somebody what they need to do, how they need to fold dough or how they need to roll pastry or whatever it is and to make make it clear as possible what that dish we think should look like. Um, acknowledging also that people at home might end up with a slightly different result because everyone's ingredients are different and kitchens are slightly different and equipment is slightly different. So sort of showing you how we imagine it might look and giving you instructions to get there and also acknowledging that it's food and food is always a bit of a movable feast. Mm -hmm. So before these um, jam-packed weeks, is it important to you that she reads the books that these foods are from? We had a really, for the first time we did it for the first book, we went to Copenhagen for four days together um, before we we shot the book, about probably about six weeks before we shot the book. And I said, have you read these books? And we sort of went through the list and, and she's, not as much of a prolific reader of novels as I am um, and so there were lots where I sort of went okay I'm not going to like say you have to go away and do the research but what we're going to do is we're going to go out for dinner in Copenhagen and we're going to sit down and I'm going to talk you through the plot of 50 books <laughs> and the scene in which that food is consumed and those characters and what they do and who they are and what time of day I mean the most important thing for us was that we kind of got the light right in terms of the time of day because the first book is obviously structured around eating at breakfast eating at lunch midnight feasts all of those sort of things so we wanted all the light in the book is natural and we wanted it to match when the characters are eating that meal Mm-hmm. So we structured the days around that where we'd photograph the breakfast recipes first thing in the morning and we'd photograph midnight feasts just before we lo- lost the light at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I think you get at this in mentioning that you had to explain the plot to um, of all these books to your photographer, which I think is such a good move. But um, how do you think both food and books nourish our bodies in a very uh, in- important but also wholly unique way? I think that they do both do that I think that's a very correct statement in very different ways I think there's I think the best sort of version of that story is A Little Princess um, in which Sarah Crew lives in a in an attic after having been an incredibly privileged child um, with lots and lots of money whose father goes missing is presumed dead and loses all of the family money and she is turned into a, a maid at this school that she's been at um, and was once at as a student and is suddenly in the attic and and continues to tell stories because they they feed her in this really visceral way that she feels like she's still connected to this quite magical world. Now obviously it's a children's story and the reality of the world is that 
literature feeds us in metaphorical and definitely not literal ways. And there are people in the world dealing with very real hunger and very real complications of how they eat and where they get food from. Um, and that is something that I think is unavoidable when you talk about hunger and when you talk about how what food does for us. I think food is this sort of, it's a complete biological imperative. If we don't actually eat food every day, your body struggles, literally struggles to do what it needs to do. But I do think that literature and storytelling and the way in which we communicate and tell stories to each other is a really important thing as well and is something that shapes communities and allows us to understand our history and where we come from and gives us empathy and all of these incredible things that we know that storytelling does. Mm-hmm. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio has plenty more. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I'm the host of Feast Your Ears here on HRN. My show explores the world of food through storytelling. Every week, I talk with people inside and outside the food world about how experience has shaped what they eat and cook. You can find Feast Your Ears wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. Um, So we were just talking a bit about the ways that food and books literally uh, and figuratively nourish our bodies. And um, I was going to talk a bit about styles of food writers. I feel like every food writer seems to have um, a kind of a lifestyle or brand behind their writing and that their recipes try to convey. And so what have you found that your audience connects with the most? And this can differ across your platforms, whether your blog, your Guardian column, or Instagram. Do they connect with books, with dishes, or, I mean, as awful as this is, simply just how beautiful the photo is, you know, just how um, simply, easily digestible and pretty it looks? Um, I think lots, I think that there are different levels of it and different elements of it. Um, and I think that definitely people connect with the stories. So I, I start each of my Instagram posts, each of my recipes online and each of my recipes in the book with a quote from a novel. And it, it connects, I think, uh, either very literally. So either it's a, it's a, a visual rep- the image will then be a visual representation of that actual meal or it will be about a time of year or a season or a mood or something else um, and and I think people most connect with that level of, with that aspect of the storytelling so the sort of the most interesting conversations I have underneath 
photos on Instagram, for example, are when people really connect with the quote and go, oh my gosh, that I love that story or I love that book or I love that moment or gosh, I hadn't thought about that line for ages. And so I think, and I think in a similar way, people who come to book events or want to talk to me about the book, um, the cookbook, really want to talk about the stories in it as well as the recipes. Um, but I think probably mostly the stories. They want to talk about the books they read as children and they want to talk about what that, what remembering those stories and reading them again have meant to them. They want to talk about books they read as adults and how they connect with those books. And I think that's been a really interesting way in. Um, I, I love reading, but I didn't study literature or anything. I, I am not... And before I started doing this job, I was a theatre producer, um, but I wasn't sort of somebody who read for a living. And now I get to, and it's this massive joy that some part of my job, um, although I would identify most as a food writer, a big part of my job has become literally that I have to read all the time because I need to, to have new stories and new, new recipes to create. Mm-hmm. What prompted your change from being a theater producer to doing what you do now? Just that it started doing quite well. Um, so I I looked at my boss's job and I think he did an amazing job at it, but I didn't want it. Um, I'd been a theater producer for six years um, doing young people's young people's work. So working with sort of teenagers mostly to make theatre and to so to make work with them as well as for them to go out into schools and engage with schools in different ways um, in terms of what we put on stage in the theatre and I had a great time doing it but I my boss was less connected to that work because he obviously had the responsibility of um, going to meetings with the heads of our departments and and the sort of head of the theatre and doing more of the funding applications and all of that sort of stuff and I looked at that and went oh gosh I'm not sure that the next step at work is a step that I want to do Um, and so the blog was doing well and I was having a lot of fun doing it and so I left work thinking I might open a cafe Um, and then a couple of months after I left work I signed a book deal to write the book and I did that while I was a nanny so I, I sort of found a way to live really cheaply in London, which was to be a nanny in somebody's house. Did that for a couple of years and then started writing the second one. Do you still have plans to open a cafe? No. Um, <laughs> um, it. I think it would have been amazing, but I have enjoyed writing too much. I think I have endless respect for people who work in food and work full-time in cafes and restaurants. Um, but I think it would leave me no time to do anything else. And I've enjoyed writing too much to, mm. to give it up. Yeah. Um, a criticism I'm sure that you uh, and your book gets is, well, I wish I had done that, right? I like food, I like books, and I like food in books, <laughs> but what encouraged you to be the one to actually make the book? Um, I I do get that quite a lot. Um, and lots, lots of people, particularly in bookshops, who come up and just go, I cannot believe this didn't exist, and I cannot believe that you did it. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. I wish I'd done it. Um, I mean, one reason that people hadn't done it is that it's really expensive to get the rights to do it. So you, you have to contact 
every writer oh, wow. whose work or their estate or their publisher or whoever owns the rights to the, the sort of the words that I open each recipe with. Um, and that was an incredibly complex and um, sort of extraordinarily nutty and tricky um, sort of task that took about about three years actually to get the rights to all of the work that was in the first book um, and it was a job that I think I naively assumed would A, not be my responsibility and then would B, be much easier for whoever's responsibility it was than it actually was so I think that I went into it with and, and I, I would never never say that I wouldn't have done it because I have had so much fun and I'm so proud of the work and I think it's it's been such a great book to write but I do think I went into it quite naively assuming that would be an easy thing and that perhaps that's the reason it hadn't happened in the way that it had before. Mm-hmm. Are many of the authors open to your project and do, or do you kind of engage them in creative dialogue too when devising these recipes? So I I made a really active decision that I wanted to only do recipes in the book. And this was for for a multitude of reasons, but recipes that were for real food, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of sort of fictional food, um, some of which has ended up on the blog. So food that only exists in the world of that story or in the world of that book. Um, and I decided that for the, the cookbook, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to focus very much on real-world food so that people could cook it on a normal Wednesday, not when they were having a Lord of the Rings-themed party <laughs> and they wanted to serve the elven bread that keeps them all going through the <laughs> the task of <laughs> walking into Mordor. That's the next one. Because um, lots of people ask why that bread's not in the, in mm. the book. And not only does it sound grim and like something I wouldn't want to make, um, but it's it's Tolkien's creative property. It's it's his thing. Hmm. And so I have had lots of wonderful conversations with novelists in the past couple of years. It's been the most extraordinary thing to be able to create things for these writers I really admire and have a few of them come back and say, gosh, that's great, or I really love that. Um, and that's that's been a really lovely part of what I do. But actually, um, mostly I just wanted to do the real world food rather than in any sense collaborate with them, apart from the fact that I'm obviously collaborating with them in a removed sense in that I use their creative work and I'm inspired by it. Mm-hmm. And so the more fantastical recipes for the blog, um, is your process any different in drafting the recipes for those? Yeah, I mean, I so the best example, I think, is on the blog, there's a recipe for the Whipple Scrumptious Fudge Melly Delight from Charlie and Chocolate Factory, which is not a real chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of went, what do those words mean? What would Whipple Scrumptious Fudge Mellow Delight be? And there's something whipped, and there's something fudgy, and there's something marshmallowy, perhaps. And I sort of made this chocolate bar. But obviously, for all the recipes on the blog, it's the one that I... I mean, if you've made... If you're listening to this and you went onto the blog and you decided that what you were really going to make was the Whipple Scrumptious Fudge Really Delight, then my hat is tipped to you because it's a nightmare. I've obviously never made it once. It was so complicated. And it you don't need to do it. Go down to the corner shop and have a chocolate bar. Like, it, you know, it was good, but it was not, like... And even better than a Mars bar, really. Um, and so 
so that was a really fun one to make, but it was a fun project rather than something I would encourage people to make on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I think that's really fun and ironic, though, because you are only making it as hard as it needs to be, right, for yourself. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about a blog is that, and at that stage, because I think that was probably within the first six months of writing the blog, most of the people reading it was my mum reading it on various computers. So she said a year later, once I did have a readership on the blog, that a lot of the first couple of months was just her reading it on a couple of different computers. That's really sweet. It's really sweet. It is really sweet. It's totally sweet. But it was like, it was entirely ridiculous to consider that some of the readership was just, bless her, my lovely mum reading Mm -hmm. it on various computers. And now fast forward six years, your blog has been picked up by The Guardian. And so um, how often do you write for them? And is it just kind of an extension of your blog? So it was for a couple of years. I wrote for their books team. I am. Um, I We decided in the middle of last year that, mo- uh, that I was putting a lot of my recipes up there for free and that actually I wanted to focus on the books. Um, and so I am not doing The Guardian regularly anymore Um, but I am writing for various, I write for various other publications but my big focus at the moment is the the second book so I I did turn the blog into a a weekly and then fortnightly column for The Guardian Um, and that was a great thing to do and I really loved doing it but um, I haven't been doing that for for a little while because I want to yeah, focus on the books. Mm-hmm. So do you not uh, update the blog as much now? I'm really rubbish with updating the blog now. I will be better, I think, in the next few months because the drafts for the second book have gone off. And so um, it will feel much more like, essentially, the blog and the book functioned in very similar ways. So it became tricky to put stuff on the blog and not go well, this works for the book and mm-hmm. I'm going to keep it for the book or, or put it in the book. So I think because they were such similar projects, it's hard to do while I'm focusing on writing the book, but I'm going to I'm going to pick it up again. <laughs> and so when you, um, you talked about writing for various publications, is it largely food from books or is it just different recipes that you've come up with? It's been an interesting mix of things. So, so the loveliest thing has been that Actually, I love writing about food generally. Um, I've written all sorts of things for different publications. So I have written about food in books, but I've also written about how good carbs are. Um, and I've written about sort of mushroom season in in Europe. And I've written about um, uh, like memories of Christmas time and, uh, and biscuits at Christmas and sort of nostalgia at Christmas time. So I've written for various publications in various different ways and sometimes it's related to fiction and food mostly it's related to food and occasionally it's something entirely different like I I wrote a piece for somebody about how much I love dungarees (laughs) (laughs) Um, so back to your Instagram I noticed many of them and you talked about this already that um, they're not quite literal pairings of food and literature so can you walk Mm. us through a process of something that's more seasonally inspired or something like a mood that inspired a dish Um, how do you go about drafting ideas like that so I I grew up where there weren't many seasons so Australia particularly there's various Australia's obviously a massive country and very very spread out Um, so there are places that are very seasonal Um, But I have to say that Queensland isn't one of them. We kind of have 
quite hot and sometimes wet, and then we have not quite so hot and a bit drier. Um, and so most of my childhood was when I was growing up, we had some seasonal ingredients that you'd come across and they'd be exciting and they'd come back like mangoes and and lovely things like that. But actually, I moved to the UK and the seasons were such a big part of what I loved about living here. And that sense that, you know, at the moment where we're, the shift between winter and spring is happening. And so not all the food is yet in the greengrocers or at the market. So it's only sort of the very first spring food that's now available. But the light has shifted and the mood shifts and so many people write so beautifully and so eloquently about that transition between winter and spring or about that transition into autumn when all the leaves change. And so every time I'm reading, I'm also thinking about lovely descriptions of the world in which we live, about things that happen at various times of the year, about um, and about the shift in seasons and that that change. And I write down quotes, and then I'm either inspired by them to cook, or I'll take a photo of something I've cooked, or a photo of some books somewhere, or a photo of a library that I go to, and I'll come across. I'll look at my sort of list of quotes that I keep, and um, and use one of them to communicate it, mm. and that sort of led on to what the second book is, which is a, a book about eating and reading throughout the year. So the book starts in January and is all about, you know, meals for one because it's just been Christmas and you don't want to see another human for a couple of weeks or um, fish suppers in Narnia because that sort of wonderful moment in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when the beavers give um, the Pevensey children fish and potatoes or making pickles in winter leads into spring meals and then leads into summer meals and reading the town to Mr. Ripley and wanting to be in Italy and moves then into autumn meals and back to school and tuck boxes and apples and Halloween and then through to Christmas again. Um, so that's that sort of what I was really enjoying about the Instagram and, and about tracing it through the year became the second book. So it's still full of books. Um, and full of food, but it's got a slightly different feel to the first book. Right, it's like all one living, breathing document that you can go and reflect on. Yeah, I hope so. So yeah, yeah. And so how have you, um, in your drafting creative process, how have you come to see and use food as yet another medium for expression in addition to the writing? The food's been a really wonderful thing. I've cooked all my life because my family were enthusiastic cooks. So I'm really lucky that I grew up in a house where I learned how to cook from my parents um, and where sort of going to a market and engaging with ingredients and shopping for food was a big part of what it was to look forward to about being an adult. <laughs> that was one of my major things was how much I looked forward to being a grown-up so that I could do the food shopping and plan meals and invite friends around for dinner. That was always a huge part of my life, even before it could be a part of my life, so even when I was living at home. And then I moved here and it it has always been a big thing, food. I, I have sort of feelings about what I want to cook because of the seasons or because of who's coming around or because of a thing I've just read or watched or whatever else. And it's been a wonderful thing to be able to go, yes, I'm going to follow that route and cook that thing and then remember why I did it. Um, and 
and that's it's such a, a wonderful way of being able to express what I'm feeling or what mood I'm in or all any of those sort of things and so as well as the writing which I enjoy so much mm-hmm. the and cooking is very much a creative thing as well um, and is just me responding to either what's in the market or what I've just read or what the weather's doing outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually what I was just about to ask you. Um, it's almost like a chicken or the egg thing. Are you inspired by flavors or dishes first, or do you um, visit or revisit books first? It's it's a complete combination, and, and like it can be either one. So it's and it's it, it it's not all, not restricted to those two things either. But they are the predominant influences, I guess. It's either something I want to cook because I'm a flavor is is. A draw, or something I'm interested in eating, or I see something in a market that I want to cook with, or I read all the time, and so I'll come across something in a book that I want to try, or I'll come across a character talking about an amazing ingredient or a perfect apple, and then I will want to cook something with an apple, even if it's not the exact thing that that character is eating. Mm-hmm. And so you even took this to real life programming. You hosted separate clubs with your friend. Am I right that you had a Parks and Rec themed one? Can you talk a bit about those? Yeah, yeah, we do. So my pal Liv, we were both, um, we both started blogging at about the same time, I think. And we didn't know each other at all, but we started reading each other's stuff online. And then I left theatre just as she was planning to leave the bar. She was a barrister. Um, and we ended up at the quite similar times being uh, freelance for the first time and feeling like a bit like we still wanted to work with somebody else and we wanted to make things and, and do a project. And so we started cooking together. So she came and helped me at a supper club that I'd planned in a bookshop. And then we started working together and the first dinner we did was a Gilmore Girls dinner. Oh my gosh, what did you serve? Books felt, <laughs> books at that point felt kind of like the thing that I was doing um, and we've since got over that feeling and, and we we now do book themed dinners in a bookshop together so we did a, a Joy Luck Club one recently we did a Danny the Champion of the World dinner we're about to do a room with a view um, for spring in April but okay. we started by doing TV because it was another thing that we totally connected on it's something we both really loved and it's something that felt slightly removed from both of the projects that we were doing individually mm-hmm. so it didn't feel like it treaded too much on either one of our territory so yes the first one we did was Gilmore Girls and then we did Twin Peaks and the West Wing and Parks and Rec and yeah and The Good Place and yeah basically all our favorite shows we just picked our favorite things that the characters eat and got 16 people around in Liv's dining room and living room and served them all dinner for the Gilmore Girls one, did you just serve like junk food? I can't even think of what, what Rory and Lorelai so, eat. Oh, I guess Luke's food. What did food. we do? We did four courses. So we did the start with canapes that they were having at Richard and Emily's. Oh, so okay. we had like stuffed mushroom cups mm-hmm. and um, and little volivants. And then we did um, Chinese takeout. So we had noodles and spring rolls. And then we did a Korean Thanksgiving, deep fried Korean Thanksgiving because that brilliant episode where they end up having four Thanksgivings mm-hmm. in a day. Um, and so we had, like, Korean spiced fried chicken wings and loads of, like, Thanksgiving ingredients in salads and 
then we had three different types of pie at Luke's Diner and coffee for dessert. Oh my gosh, so amazing! And um, what are you reading? <laughs> so and yeah, what are you reading and cooking currently to finish? Um, I I'm just I've just cooked a, a Earl Grey and chocolate loaf from a friend of mine wrote this beautiful book called Coco that is about the history of chocolate and about chocolate in food and so I saw this recipe last night and just had to make it that's what I made yesterday but I also today um, the spring greens are just out here so I had buckwheat noodles and spring greens Mm -hmm. with loads of soy and mirin and a fried egg that was really good Um, and I'm currently finishing reading a Peter Whimsey mystery called The Nine Tailors by Dorothy L. Sayers which I am absolutely loving Um, and I'm doing a reread of A Fine Balance by Rosen Mystery Your book is coming out this fall am I correct? It is in the UK yes so I think it will be a couple of months later in the States but yes the new book is out in October in the UK Mm -hmm. And it'll be called The Little Library Year. Um, It will indeed. So look out for that. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kate. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.